The Business of Architecture and Design is brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Architectural Review Magazine and Australian Design Review. Many of us have been impacted over the past few months with changed work conditions and restricted access to usual resources. While in Victoria we are still in Stage 4 lockdown, we are excited to bring to you a podcast that was recorded earlier in the year, right at the start of the pandemic-related restrictions. Over the next five days, we will publish this five-episode special. Welcome back. Architect Chris Boss is the co-founder of Lava, an adjunct professor at UTS and a key designer of the Beijing Water Cube. For this podcast, he is joined by Vince Frost, the founder, group CEO and group executive creative director of the creative agency Frost Collective from his Sydney office. Together, they share their journeys through their two disciplines and discover that many processes and challenges are similar. In this first episode, Chris Boss and Vince Frost talk about their backgrounds, how they became interested in design and how COVID has forced a change in approach. Architect Chris Boss was educated in Germany and Switzerland, working at European architecture firms before moving to Sydney. Whilst working as associate architect at PTW in Sydney, he completed many critical acclaimed projects in Asia and in the Middle East. Chris's Watercube Olympic Swimming Centre in Beijing received the Atmosphere Award at the 9th Venice Architectural Biennale. In 2007, Chris co-founded the Laboratory for Visionary Architecture, LAVA, with Tobias Wallace and Alexander Rieck. LAVA marries future technologies and naturally occurring structural typologies and patterns to build smarter, efficient and environmentally conscious designs. LAVA's credits include the German Pavilion Expo in 2020 in Dubai, Van Fu Towers in Hanoi and the Martian Embassy in Sydney. Last year they won the competition to design Ho Chi Minh City's Central Park alongside Aspect Studios. Chris is the director of LAVA's Asia-Pacific office in Sydney with European office in Stuttgart and Berlin. Good to be here with you, Chris. Thanks, Vince. Same to you. Founder and ECD of Frost Collective, Vince Frost is one of the world's most acclaimed designers. Vince began his career with five years at Pentagram, becoming the youngest ever associate director. He founded his own Frost Design in London in 1994, before relocating the business to Sydney in 2004. In 2014, Frost Design became Frost Collective, spawning five specialist brands under its umbrella that cut across the spectrum of spatial and digital design. Urbanite focuses on spatial design, Nest on experience design, Nest VR on immersive VR and AR wayfinding and placemaking experiences, and Jack on environmentally conscious packaging design. Frost Collective has driven numerous award-winning projects including work for Qantas, Sydney Opera House, Woolworth, Landlease, and AMP. His 2014 book, Design Your Life, and the accompanying podcast focuses on applying design principles to life and is well worth a listen. So Chris, tell us about your early years. Uh, where, where were you born and where did you grow up and, and what was your family like? So I was born in 1971 in Stuttgart, Germany. And Stuttgart is in the south of Germany, and it's a town that is known for uh, cars, essentially, for Mercedes and for Porsche. And there's a very proud tradition of this sort of engineering and technology. So even today in Stuttgart, there's a lot of technology companies. 
building components for all sorts of aircraft or space technology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, so in that environment, my dad was a teacher at the university, and he was actually born in Berlin, but he moved to Stuttgart for this professorship, and my mom followed him from northern Germany. And so they set up in a suburb um, of Stuttgart called Feyingen, which is also home of the university. And my kindergarten in the 70s was all, you know, this kind of collective, laissez-faire education, experimentation, kind of interesting time, I think, after the student revolution and the 68, 69, Jimi Hendrix and Woodstock and all those things. Mm -hmm. People tried to translate that into the upbringing of their children. Mm. And so our kindergarten, I think, was very open and interesting kindergarten. And it was embedded in the university. And the reason I'm telling all that is because my feeling was always, my experience going into kindergarten was also always part of university and part of research. There was uh, the Institute of Lightweight Structures, 500 meters from my kindergarten. And my parents would take me there. And that institute became like a crucial element of my later architectural life because it was all about architecture and engineering and practice of learning from nature and translating that into a kind of fantastical buildings. Wow, and obviously, cool. I wasn't aware of that at the time, but I'm always thinking how early childhood experiences kind of shape the road ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, totally. So when we sometimes now do uh, educational spaces, kindergartens, creative writing centers, and so on. I'm always trying to think, what do these kids experience when they come in there, and will that actually change their life forever? Yeah, absolutely will, yeah. Good and bad. Yeah, well, it could be a horrible experience. I mean, uh, imagine you grow up in a prefab kindergarten, fibro, without windows, um, stuck somewhere in a backyard, mm -hmm. and that's your childhood. I mean, is that the kind of environment you want to have your kids grow up in mm. or do you want the kid to be engaged and motivated and immersed in immersed in technology i always think but also in nature experiences there's a great program in centennial park where they do these outdoor classrooms which i think fantastic for children to actually experience australian landscape mm -hmm. um, in an educational environment and at the same time of course now, in particular, there's a lot of online learning and kids grow up with constantly embracing digital technologies and communica communication technologies, gaming, and those sort of things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Vince, how was your upbringing in England? Yeah, and I was born back in 1964, a long time ago, and uh, born in Brighton in England. And uh, my mom and dad, very cool, Alan and Irene. Very young parents, and my dad was a printer. And uh, I guess from an early early years, a bit like what you said about looking back on your childhood and seeing kind of things that were connected, I definitely saw that my dad's passion for printing and and um, typography and letters it really influenced me uh, from a very early age. He kept showing me these cool logos or or cool letters, or he'd bring home pieces of type. Not when I was a baby, of course. <laughs> but in my early years. And then we, my parents kind of wanted to uh, look for a better life. It was really hard in England at that time. 
and certainly be really hard now too. But uh, they emigrated to Canada, and uh, I grew up in Canada, basically, in Saskatchewan originally, and then we moved to Vancouver uh, later on. When I was in my uh, 15, around about 15, we, my parents got very homesick and decided to move back to England. Uh, this was in one of my, in kind of, I was in the final years of high school, which was quite disruptive at the time. And it kind of set me, it was set me back because we moved back to England and we were pretty hard up at the time. And I went straight into the last year of school in England. And, and it was just, I was a complete alien, uh, completely different in terms of culturally different and dressed differently and had obviously grown up with different experiences than, than the people that I went to school with in Lansing and Sussex. And it, it really kind of, that threw me back. And I just uh, took me a while to work out what to do with my career. And that's where I, I tried going to a tech college and ended up you know, not doing very well at that. Spent most of my time down the beach sunbathing instead of going to school. And then you know, my mom said to me at one stage, why don't you just go, why don't you try going to an art school? And I, you know, to be honest, I wasn't that familiar with what an art school was. I'm that naive. But then I went to try it out for an art school, Worthing West Sussex College of Art, and uh, didn't get in. And then they gave me this opportunity to do a foundation course, which was really, really changed everything for me because it just gave me experience to a whole number of subjects like uh, product design, graphics, animation, AV, which is audiovisual uh, at the time, textiles, uh, drawing classes, a whole bunch of stuff. And it was, just, it was just incredible. And out of that, I had to decide that I had to choose one of those things, which I found quite frustrating because I loved them all. And I guess that probably started for me my kind of journey of trying to hold on to being a generalist, even though at the time I was specializing in graphic design and communications. So it's quite interesting that I've, uh, since then I kind of obviously been I've been building a business that is a, a generalist business full of specialists, and a very much a reflection of what I believe is a better way of structuring my business to enable me to be able to help people in a whole array of ways. Creator of the Business of Architecture and Design podcast, blogs, conferences, and videos. Content Brains can assist you with all of your content needs. We will work with you to develop content that inspires, educates, and connects. For more information, visit the episode notes in this podcast for a link to our website. And isn't it interesting how your dad comes from a printing background and you become this mad uh, designer with typefaces and logos and slogans and all that? You always wondered, like, you know, you're obviously born with a talent, and I'm sure that talent comes from your parents as well. But then it's also just the exposure to things. I mean, did your parents take you to Andy Warhol exhibitions? Or did you look at graphic design, like, in the, like going through the print shop and looking at how things are laid out and the techniques of printing and all that? Yeah, I, I don't think they took me to Andy Warhol had exhibitions, but they definitely took me to exhibitions and my brother and two sisters. But they, but in Canada, I guess the, around you was, it's a very graphic country, like America, North America is incredibly graphic. There's logos for everything, you know, there's brands everywhere, and they're very loud and they're very bold and very important for organization. Nike, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. You know, Seattle Seahawks. You know, there's there's 
there's the teams, all the teams, a huge fascination around sport. Every every sport has is a brand, and every individual player is a brand. And I was always fascinated by that. Every car is a brand. Every shape of that car is distinctive to that brand. You know, you talk about Mercedes. Mercedes look like Mercedes. It's not just the badge. It's the tires. It's the smell. It's the ride. It's the everything is 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 part and connected to that that uh, brand itself. So I've always just been fascinated by that. I've been fascinated. My old schools. Each school had a brand. You know, each school had messaging and typography and you know architecture and sometimes the architecture was distinctive to a particular brand you know if you a hospital looks like a hospital a police station looks like a police station you know what i mean like a a drive-through has a certain uh look and feel to it and each of those individual brands that is a drive-through has its own personality as well so i just found that once i i guess i took it for all for granted initially but, you know, being a human sponge such as we are, you see these things and then you realize later that those actually were very much influencing you in, your, in the everyday. I mean, some people say that all we're doing as creatives is kind of re-addressing our childhood experiences and putting them into a contemporary context. You know, mm. as, as an architect where, where it's about spatial context, it could be true that all the experiences you have in childhood and may it be like building experiences or natural experience, being under a tree, being in an amazing train station, being in a cathedral, uh, I don't know, swimming or snorkeling underwater, all those kind of experiences, you then later try to recreate, especially in architecture, even in a completely different context, but you want to evoke that sort of feeling there's one architect who i admire very much in switzerland although he's completely different from what we do peter sumtor mm-hmm. and he wrote a whole book called thinking architecture which is all about essentially his childhood memories of you know simple things like touching the door handle at his grandmother's chalet somewhere in the mountains <laughs> and yeah. and you know the the sensation of touching this timber or brass or whatever the door handle was and the smell and the sound and all of that. And and he tries to then, if he designs, you know, the Kunsthaus break-ins, which is like a super high-tech uh, arts factory kind of building, mm-hmm. he tries to translate those kind of experiences into contemporary architecture. You know, what does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? You know, what, how would you describe it when you close your eyes? What is the light when you open your eyes? Those kind of things. It's mm. quite interesting because there, and he describes these things really well, mm-hmm. and not everybody can verbalize it as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm probably not someone who verbalizes experiences as much. I think you're doing a good I job. try to translate them into. <laughs> I try to translate them into into first into imagery and then into building. And if then the final building gives you that sort of sensation, then you get the magic. That magic feeling of accomplishment. I was just wondering if when you were talking about that, how, uh, how your life, your childhood experience is influencing, you know, your, how you approach the architecture, for example, do you think everybody feels, has the same experience or feels the same way in an, an experience? Like, you know, if you take snorkeling or whatever, scuba diving or whatever you mentioned before, it's just like you, do you experience that scuba diving the same way as I would, for example? You know, you might think it's incredible. You might see things that I might not see, or they might be very similar. 
I'm just wondering how much of with architecture then is how much of uh, if you're saying that the, the those influences are uh, creating ideas for you to then to express in your work. Are you doing that for yourself, or do you, do you do you presume everybody who's going to be then walking through that architecture is going to have the same experiences that you intend them to have in a very rounded roundabout way kind of thing? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, everybody's wired differently, and everybody experiences things differently. Everybody sees colors differently. I mean, you, you probably know more about colors than me, but my understanding is that every color that we see, only we. Only us, we see this color in that exact fashion and, and everybody else uh, sees it in a different way, but we all call it red, blue and green. Yeah. And uh, so in that way, I probably, when I, I like this example of snorkeling in a uh, coral reef because it kind of talks about a lot of different things. <clears throat> but I experienced the, the coral reef as this amazing three-dimensional kind of urban almost experience so i try to imagine how this would work as an urban environment mm -hmm. you see all these fish swimming around all the corals opening and closing you see currents of water you see nutrients floating past and you see sunlight filtered through the water surface rippling down and you see visible light rays and they project onto the ground and the sunlight of course symbolizes energy and and so all of that is this, this cycle of a living kind of world around us. And it has form, it has shape, it has color, it has uh, different life forms, and it constantly evolves. And for me, it's an incredibly stimulating kind of environment. And of course, you can just snorkel through and say there's a bunch of fish and some <laughs> corals, but you can also Nemo. see it as, as this amazing... <laughs> yeah, I think Nemo is an amazing uh, movie, actually. Because yeah. they captured that really well, you yeah. know, and, yeah. and give it like personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting because your your work is very. I guess people refer to it as organic, don't they? It's yeah. it's, it's very fluid. It's not it's not angular like a lot of like a lot of architecture. We did this project a few years back in Melbourne for the Melbourne Cup. It was one of these marquees, uh, mm. the bird cage. Mm -hmm. So it's hundred square meters in size a 10 by 10 standard marquee that you can buy off the shelf. And our job was to transform it for the horse racing experience as a kind of VIP tent. And so we lined it with this, what we call a minimal surface. So a kind of a stretched membrane fabric that created organic shapes and completely transformed this space into a kind of outer worldly experience. And at the same time, we perforated the ceiling liner with little dots and that when the sun came up, all of a sudden the sun would cast these amazing dot patterns all over the floor and all over the membrane. Mm. And so that meant you were kind of inside, but at the same time you had an experience of outside and, and this kind of effect of, of surprise and of delight. Wow. And so most of the other marquees are around topics, you know, like classic horse racing kind of, kind of traditional themes. Mm. And ours was this completely futuristic thing and people walked in there and they were just amazed and they kind of, they couldn't comprehend exactly what was going on, but they just felt, you know, uplifted by this interior. And for me, that was uh, one of the greatest experience to see people react to that and to be surprised by, by what some, something so simple as that can do and how it can change that day. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that because you, you often talk about 
very small projects like that with such passion. But equally, you're working on redesigning cities, aren't you? I mean, you've got the kind of the two ends of the scale, uh, a small marquee or, you know, a two-bedroom apartment, a house in Paddington or uh, a, ki- a kid's place in Redfern. You know, there's, there's, and then you're kind of in Vietnam doing these massive, massive developments. It's quite interesting to see, hear you talk about that in that way you know what I mean like I would have thought that someone working with those on those huge developments would wouldn't be interested in the you know uh, a temporary marquee what what why what where does that come from for you for me it's um it's kind of about the ideas that underpin the project and that's irrespective of the size of the project I think it's almost like the small project there maybe the the creative playground for the ideas that then inform the large project and sometimes the other way around, you, you think about a restaurant in the same way that you would think about organizing a city. So mm. I guess at the end of the day, you find that ideas are applicable in multiple scales. And that's also something that you would find in nature. And going back to that coral reef example, the organizational pattern of a coral is the same organizational pattern that you would find in a forest or in the universe. So it's interesting to find these relationships between different systems mm. and apply them to different kind of scales. We, we design furniture and we haven't designed jewelry, but I wouldn't mind. It's mm. kind of, it doesn't, it's not about the scale. I think it's about the ideas. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And sometimes, the, I mean, one, one kind of more pragmatic view of that, of course, is the smaller the project, the more you can control it and the more likely it is to happen. You know, sometimes you have these big uh, visions like our current project for the uh, Central Park in Ho Chi Minh City, mm-hmm. which is an amazing project, but it probably has a 10, 20 year kind of timeline. And that means a lot of financial questions and decisions, a lot of political change, a lot of kind of pragmatic things that come in the way. But the, the project itself, we design it with the same passion and try to put our creative insight and foresight and diversity into the project mm. no matter what the scale is yeah, yeah that's cool i definitely agree with that we do the same thing but we don't obviously design cities but we help brand places that's for sure but i i, I personally but you probably write briefs for cities yeah the, the you t- know if you brand a place it's almost uh, interestingly maybe sorry for butting in but in the past maybe Someone would build a, a development and then go to you and say, hey, can you give us a logo and how do we sell this now? Yeah. But I think now they would come to you and say, what do you think this place should be? Is, say, a central exactly. park in Sydney or something. What, what, what should it be? What sort of people should live there? How do you see them? And how can we visualize that before we even start designing it? Absolutely. That's exactly what's, what's happened over time. And my team back in uh, in the studio, well, not in the studio, they're, they're all they're all around now. Uh, but the Frost Place team, head up by Cat Burgess, is absolutely brilliant. Cat's really experienced in that area. And, you know, there's projects like, yes, uh, Central Park in Sydney or Key Quarter down at Circular Key for A&P Capital. Just incredible, just right yeah. in the beginning of a project, just before when you're working with a developer on their vision, not necessarily on what they haven't worked out yet necessarily what they are who is going to be the architect, et cetera, but they know, you know, help, helping to unpack that vision, help to create a strategy around that kind of meaning and, and definition, which then influences everything. You know, we call it kind of place visioning, but that influences everything that comes from that. 
uh, whether it's retail, commercial, residential, you know, the park design. It's it's all how how people navigate the space, whether you know through the mall or whatever it might be. It's really a wonderful place to be. Versus in, previously, we would be yeah, as you said, we were brought in after sometimes after the building's been built, and and people go, okay, what's what's our strategy for this? You know, it's a bit like post rationalization, trying to make sense of of yeah. all that's been done before, and you know, you you tend to get it to a good place, but of course. You know, sometimes at that time people scratch their heads going, you know, what is unique about this development? And even the people sometimes developing it don't know. You know, they're just, they're just trying to get maximum square footage out of it and get the thing done. I thought it was really yeah, interesting. Exactly. But then w- w- what's the concept? Like the concept for this precinct uh, in Sydney on the waterfront is we maximize the profitability and we maximize the floor area. And we trick the government into allowing extra floor space ratio. Mm-hmm. Is that the concept of the project, or is the concept of the project to create this amazing place oh, that God, people yeah. can identify with, that they can enjoy, that gives the city access to water, that maybe creates a new fish market, yeah, that yeah. creates a new leisure precincts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of that, and it's kind of. I think it's amazing. A city like a city like Sydney, you just think it would be would have a lot of that sorted out by now. But there's, there's definitely, there's places like Circle Key, which are in huge uh, redevelopment right now and have been, in a way, kind of, I guess, designed over time. And now people are looking at it with a, a, with a, a whole experience, looking at the whole experience that anybody who's a, a tourist or someone who works there or whatever, passing through and how do we add value to their lives and to their day and to their journey. And that there's a big difference between just building you know, buying some land and building something and trying to make as much money as possible versus actually trying to add, contribute to the to the world and to the city and to people's lives in a positive way. Yeah. Another good example for that, I think, is the tenant mix. You know, there used to be a time where you just build a shopping center and then someone might rent your space and it's probably going to work somehow. But now you strategize what sort of food and beverage offerings do you want to have there? Like Barangaroo, probably a good example, where they have a very clear vision of what type of restaurants go where, what's the mix, which one is on the ground, which one is upstairs, and and how to create a holistic kind of food and beverage experience. And I think that works out very well. I mean, if there's one thing positive to say about Barangaroo, then it's probably how how the whole dining retail precinct on the waterfront works. Our hearts go out to those guys too, because as of Monday this week, uh, they lunchtime they were all shut down uh, because of the virus. And you know, I've been in touch with a few of them, and they're just saying, "Man, this is it. We're done," which is very scary because you know, as good as it looks, and and you'd think that they'd all be thriving businesses. Some of them are just you know just making it, you know making a living out of it, and uh, you know they're they've had they've had a lot at stake. It was hard enough. It's been hard enough for businesses as it was without having this virus come along and uh, stop businesses, you know. We could edit that bit out. Yeah, well, that's very, very true. And so the interesting thing about this particular week or month of our lives is that everything changes so radically that we can talk about food and beverage strategies while all the restaurants are closing. And so we will need new strategies in the future. And whatever that may be, if they all go to home delivery or online cooking classes, you know, all the fantastic chefs 
from around Australia. Maybe they have to have to teach us how to cook at home because we can't go to the restaurants anymore. All those kind of things. I mean, if you if you don't go to supermarkets anymore, where does the uh, fruit and veg come from? Do you grow that in your backyard? If you have one on your roof terrace, do you get that delivered? But if you get it delivered, do you get it delivered from Woolworths or would you rather get it delivered from the people who actually produce it? So I think yeah. these well, are that's, incredibly that's kind of going disruptive back to times, but it's an amazing reset. Yeah, back a, to basics. It's a recalibration. I mean, it's been forced on us, really. I think we've just been running at 100 miles an hour, just kind of abusing the world and taking and taking and competing with each other. And, you know, it's just, it's just I think the world's, you know, just saying, undercutting. Yeah, enough is enough, guys. You know, got to stop this. And we've had the fires before. Then we had floods, you know, droughts, and then floods. And now we got this. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a scary time. And I do think that it does give us time to to rethink. And I and I really feel for all the people out there who have lost their jobs. And by the time this comes out, maybe people are really really suffering from. You know the the economy going down, you know, down big time. So it's kind of like I think we have to talk about that now because I don't want to kind of talk as if it's not happening. It's very much happening today, and it's just beginning in Australia to get uh, to get serious with even further kind of clamping down uh, as of last night. And you know, we're nowhere near into the deep of this thing yet. So, it as a creative person, I'm just thinking of oh my god, what can I do? How can I help? And as a as a visual person, I I tend to imagine worst case scenarios really well. So I have a very lateral mind, and uh, it's not it's not good in these situations. I mean, any project that we have in the business, I always I always think about what is the the best solution, but equally what could possibly go wrong with that idea. You know, so I, I do a bit of analysis in in my head and kind of go, okay, well this this could this is bloody great, I think. But what what could stop it from being great, or what would how could that possibly not be great? And it sounds I have a crazy mind, and I'm I'm at war with myself in my head all the time. But right now, I'm a, I imagine some days I wake up and go, you know what? I just want to get this. I want to get sick. I want to get this thing and get over and done with, and get back to some kind of normality. But the guess the question is, as you said earlier, what is the normality? What is the new normal? How will we navigate this, and what what will come out of that? And it's gonna. We're being forced to redesign the world. We're forced to redesign our lives in a lot of ways. And at the moment, we don't know yet what the new normal is. You know, kind of people are hoping that you know, two weeks down the track, everything is back to normal. Everybody goes back to work. All the shops open again. The nightclubs open again. We will travel again. But it's not going to be two weeks. It's not going to be three months. I think it will be a lot longer than that. But even then. Will we still have to travel for one meeting to Saudi Arabia, China, or Europe? Or will we be so used to working remotely that all of that isn't necessary anymore? And when you think about all this flying around, and I'm guilty as anybody, mm. do you have to go to uh, Europe, to Mallorca three times a year? Do we have to fly to Bali three times a year? And the Balinese fly to Sydney three times a year. Do I have to drink French wine and the French drink Australian wine? You know, do we have to import yeah. berries from Germany? Do they import nuts from Australia? Like all those things 
are absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And most of them are marketing spin, right? If you yeah. go to a dinner party and someone says, oh, I have this beautiful chili and wine, you should say, dickhead, how about this beautiful <laughs> Australian wine? I, I agree. When you, when, and I was thinking this when we were talking about the, you know, the fires that recently and the droughts and how hard the farmers have got it. But the fact is that 75, 70% of all produce you know, grown, etc., in Australia is exported. Like we we can make enough for Australia. Why do we need to make more than than that? You know, why do we need to put this country under so much stress and pressure, and and create this kind of ter- terrible? I think for seafood, it? it's like ninety five percent. Is it? You know, there's this story about this lobster. Um, industry where 95% or so of lobsters are exported. When that export stops, all of a sudden, they're sitting on all their lobsters. Well, for the Australian market, you could easily sell all the seafood to the Australian market at the right price, of course, and and feed your own people. So this is kind of a, it's a huge topic, of course. Uh, I mean, China is always a little bit the elephant in the room. I think China is such a beautiful country, such a diverse country, such a large country, and they should easily be able to produce everything they need themselves. Like nobody can tell me that China needs to import food or wine or milk or anything from anywhere else. Mm. They should be easily self-sufficient, and so should we be, and so should the US be, and certainly Europe should be. Mm. And so this whole international market is an artificial creation of us thinking we have to ship everything around, outsource everything, import everything, export everything. But it's probably not necessary. No. I mean, look at the, but then the countries so, that can do you it. say Australia should be able to feed their own people? Yeah, they absolutely should. And it's all about this, this dumping price economy, of course. I mean, do you have to compete in flight prices to a point where you can fly for like 20 quid from London to uh, Ibiza, for example. Mm. Like, how is that even remotely possible? Mm. And how is it possible that you can buy things, you know, in $2 shops? I don't know, you buy like 12 champagne glasses for $2.99. How is it possible? <laughs> and yeah. and so somehow, I mean, we are guilty in, in our own way, uh, as architects and as creatives, okay. undermining each other and undercutting each okay. other, and and it's kind of this. You, I'm sure you're experiencing similar kind of fear spiraling downwards, this race to the bottom. Yeah, and of course, if you want to bring the fee down, then you have to bring the quality down. You have to employ cheaper people, or you have to outsource it to cheaper countries. Mm. Join us tomorrow for episode two as Chris and Vince continue their conversation on the business of architecture and design. Thank you for joining us. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. And if you enjoy listening, please rate us. It helps others like you to find us more easily. The Business of Architecture and Design is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and Publisher of Architectural Review and Australian Design Review. Madeline Swain, editor of Content Brains, and Tilly Bensley-Netheim, editor of Architectural Review and Australian Design Review Architecture. <laughs>